Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to a New Statesman podcast special on Israel's war with Hamas. As we're recording this on Monday the 16th of October, Israel is preparing to mount a ground attack on Gaza. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is crisscrossing the region in an attempt to stop the conflict from spreading. And Rishi Sunak is expected to address Parliament to reiterate the UK's condemnation of Hamas. I'm joined by Professor Lina Khatib, director of the SOAS Middle East Institute at the University of London, and the New Statesman's Alona Ferber, who has been reporting on this crisis since it began. Alona, let me start with you and the immediate context for these events in terms of the brutal attack we saw from Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants in southern Israel on the 7th of October. What do we know now about the scale of those attacks and crucially how many hostages were taken to Gaza. Thank you so much, Katie. The region, the country is still reeling in shock from what happened on Saturday, which was a very unexpected, very brutal attack by Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants. Around a thousand people came into Israel on land, in the air and tried via the sea as well and attacked those border communities near Gaza. So there are some cities of about 30,000 inhabitants in that area. The furthest inland they got was about 20 kilometers to a city called Ofakim. But the areas, those settlements near the border, those are kibbutzim. So I don't know if listeners know what a kibbutz is, this sort of utopian socialist community established by early Zionists in Israel, Palestine. Those tend to have, they can have as few as 400 residents or as many as a thousand. So very small communities. We know there's been a lot of disinformation around what happened in the past week, a lot of emotion and pain and trauma for obvious reasons. We know that the attacks were fairly brutal in that civilians were targeted, the elderly, children, babies, Holocaust survivors, etc. Houses were burnt, people died in those houses. There's evidence of bodies being mutilated. There is some evidence of rape. There's been a lot of disinformation around the extent to which things like rape happened. The Los Angeles Times yesterday published a statement saying that they had misreported the extent of rape based on unverified evidence. So in the aftermath of Saturday, there's been a lot of disinformation around around those things. 
But it's safe to say that it was a, a pretty horrendous attack. The death toll in Israel at the moment, the latest figures are 1,400 killed in those attacks, 455 unidentified bodies. So the death toll will be higher. 20% of those, around 20% are soldiers. And of the 15,000 members of those kibbutzim near the border, about a third were killed slash wounded in the attacks. This morning, the IDF, that's the Israeli army, confirmed that they had contacted 199 families to let them know that their loved ones are in Gaza. There, there are many civilian hostages as well as soldiers. There are very young children who've been taken hostage, so infants under the age of five, and there are elderly people in their 80s, people with dementia. I've heard about a neurodivergent young person who's been taken hostage, sort of a lot of vulnerable people. And since the attack, the Israeli government has been bombing Gaza. The death toll among Gazans is really high. It's now around 2,300, a quarter of whom are children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, and around 10,000 people wounded. The army ordered Gazans to evacuate the north as it was attacking Hamas. And there's a real humanitarian crisis as hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced to southern Gaza. So it's been a really difficult week. And the extent of the, the loss and the hurt is really hard to overstate. You mentioned those evacuation orders for people living in, in the northern half of Gaza. Can you just give us a sense of what that looks like in terms of how densely populated this area is, what the humanitarian situation looks like there now, and what that would mean for people, including those who are sheltering in schools or those who are being treated in, in hospitals? There are more than two million Palestinians living in Gaza. It's only about 41 kilometers long and it's like the strip of land between six and 12 kilometers wide at different points. So it's pretty tiny. As listeners will know, Gaza has been under a blockade upheld by Israel and Egypt also, which controls one of the border crossings in the south of the strip. So Gazans can't leave very easily either. There are a few roads in Gaza. It's very overpopulated. It's very difficult to actually leave to the south if you're in the north. The Israeli government also announced a day or two in, into the strikes that it was cutting off energy, water and food supplies to Gaza. Israel controls what goes in and out of the strip. So the humanitarian crisis is catastrophic proportions and hospitals, vital infrastructure has been targeted. So it's quite hard to treat the wounded in Gaza as well. And I just saw now, before we started recording, that Netanyahu, that Israeli prime minister, had reiterated that Hamas would not be receiving humanitarian aid because there's been calls to allow humanitarian aid to Gazan civilians. And his response was that there'll be no humanitarian aid to Hamas. So that's, that seems still like quite a, a far off prospect. It's a very dangerous situation for Palestinians in Gaza. Has Netanyahu made a distinction between Hamas and civilians in Gaza? How is he addressing both the, the crisis for civilians there and this, what is clearly intended to, to show resolve against the, against the militants who, who carried out this attack? It's a tricky question because, of course, the Israeli government says, you know, we, are, we aren't targeting civilians, we are targeting Hamas. They say Hamas purposefully sets up headquarters and kind of key targets in civilian areas. But the problem is Israel also knows that Hamas does that and there are, there are civilians in those areas. Israel does, a, I think it's called the roof knock tactic, where they kind of, they give a little warning before they have a, they, before they strike. But that doesn't mean that everybody can leave. It doesn't mean that it's easy to get out of there. And also 
civilians might not want to leave, right? You have your home, you might not want to go. So I think the, the Israeli government line is that it's not targeting civilians, but the scale of, of loss is huge. And it seems pretty impossible not to harm civilians in such a densely populated area. Israel gave those evacuation orders. They didn't give very long. I think it was something like 24 hours for people to leave. And if you can see the scale of the, the chaos in, in the Strip, it's quite it's difficult to kind of to get out of there. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you asked an Israeli government representative, they would say, no, we're not targeting civilians. But the reality is a lot of civilians are dying. Lena, let me bring you in here. We've also seen in recent days evacuation orders for Israeli citizens living in the north near the border with Lebanon skirmishes along that border and reports of also of airstrikes in Syria. How do you view at this stage the risk of a wider regional conflict here? The risk is always there. I still maintain it is a low risk, but nothing's impossible in this conflict because, I mean, many did not even see the Hamas attack coming, including myself. And therefore, just because I don't think that an escalation is going to happen doesn't mean that it will not happen. But the probability is low for a number of reasons. First of all, in terms of the strikes on Syria, these have been going on for a long time, for several years, in fact. They have not really been limited to this last week or necessarily only about the widening escalation probability. But... Some of the targets in Syria can be interpreted as potential deterrence for an escalation because, for example, targeting airports like Aleppo Airport and taking it out of action will deter Iran, for example, from sending further supplies by air to its proxies and allies in Syria, including Lebanese Hezbollah, which is the militant group that has been fighting alongside the Syrian regime since 2000, if not before. And so, yes, some of the strikes in Syria are about preventing escalation. When it comes to strikes on Lebanon, this is a bit of a different situation because Hezbollah is an ally of Hamas. And whenever we talk about war and peace with Hamas and Hezbollah, and here we're not talking isolated attacks, we're talking decisions to engage in war and peace. These decisions can only happen in coordination with Iran because these are really big decisions. So what I mean is Hamas cannot suddenly decide to have peace with Israel without Iran being on board. And therefore, when it comes to the attack that Hamas staged on Saturday of last week, this attack will not have happened without prior coordination and agreement with Iran. Now, when we say coordination and agreement, this does not mean that Iran ordered the attack or that Iran planned the attack militarily, but they will have been informed. And that's because an attack of this scale will not be in the interest of the allies of Hamas if it takes them by surprise. And so for Hezbollah, Hezbollah will have been prepared for a scenario in which it has to react. So Hezbollah has been launching rockets at Israel in the north from Lebanon south. And this is not opportunistic. And this is because Hezbollah knows that it cannot be seen to be standing doing nothing while its ally Hamas is engaged in this war. Now, the extent of military engagement between Hezbollah and Israel has increased. It began with Hezbollah launching rockets on disputed territory that Hezbollah says is Lebanese, but that Israel controls. 
Then we saw further attacks that went further into Israeli territory that's not disputed by Hezbollah or Lebanon. And this is definitely an escalation, and Israel retaliated with bombing several areas on the Lebanese border, including villages where, unfortunately, civilians have been killed by Israeli shelling, including a convoy of journalists. And we saw the killing of a journalist from Reuters a few days ago in this Israeli strike. So this, of course, is worrying because when the scale of mutual attacks increases, of course, things can get out of hand. But then we have another deterrent in the form of U.S. warships that are heading towards the Mediterranean. This is a very important and serious message by the United States to Hezbollah and Iran to say, do not escalate your involvement to an actual all-out war with Israel because we will not just stand there and do nothing about it. So there is a real risk that if the situation spins out of control, then we're going to not just see war between Israel and Hamas, but we're going to see the United States be involved somehow. We're going to see Lebanon bear a very costly price. And this is really not in anyone's interest when it comes to regional stability. So that's why we're seeing lots of efforts by regional actors, as well as a certain degree, the international community. Although these efforts remain, I would say, still very shy, to say, let's not let the situation escalate into a regional war. Is there also a deterrent in terms of the domestic situation in Lebanon for Hezbollah? Can you give us a sense of the environment they're operating in there and the reasons that they might not want or have the capacity to mount a major conflict now? When it comes to Hezbollah's military capacity, it's a lot greater than its capacity back in 2006, which is the last time Hezbollah engaged in all-out war with Israel. However, the domestic situation at that time was one in which Hezbollah was feeling politically pressured, and that's because the assassination of former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri happened in 2005 at fingers in Lebanon by Hariri's supporters were pointing at Hezbollah and the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria as the culprits in this assassination. And so Hezbollah, in a way, needed to redeem a sense of legitimacy and popularity for itself. And it achieved that to a certain degree by sparking a military confrontation that very quickly turned into all-out war with Israel. The situation now in Lebanon is one where Hezbollah is the most powerful political party in the country. So it is not politically pressured like it was in 2005. Unfortunately, since then, due to a series of assassinations of Hezbollah's political opponents, there are very few political forces that really can stand up to Hezbollah. It is the only political party in Lebanon that has significant weapons. And therefore, the circumstances in Lebanon are a bit different. And the people who paid a very high price last time with 2006, these are even people in Hezbollah's circle of supporters, today will not want to pay a similar price again. And therefore, the kind of popularity for military action for Hezbollah in Lebanon remains low. And also in the region, because in 2006, Hezbollah had regional support because many in the Arab world and Iran saw it as a significant force standing up to Israel. 
However, due to Hezbollah's involvement in the Syrian conflict alongside Bashar al-Assad's regime, which has been slaughtering Syrians for more than a decade, Hezbollah has lost this regional support. And so, again, the circumstances for Hezbollah are not optimal. And Hezbollah knows this, and it will have taken this in its calculations. After the break, what the West gets wrong about Iran. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Lena, you've written a, a terrific piece for the New Statesman titled What the West Got Wrong About Iran. Can you give us a sense of what you feel has been missed by outside observers about Iran's role in the region with the tendency to focus perhaps almost exclusively on it on its nuclear program. Yeah, I mean for the last 15 years the focus in the west if I can say that meaning the US, European countries including the EU has really been on the nuclear program that Iran is developing to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Now while that risk is real and should be addressed, it is not in my view the only risk that Iran presents in terms of destabilization in the Middle East, because it is also engaging in destabilization through its support for Hezbollah, its support for Hamas, its support for the Houthis in Yemen, and also uh, militias in Iraq. And therefore, you'll see Iran using a very consistent strategy for political influence, which is to use internal grievances by uh, people in those countries to rally them and give them funding, training, military equipment, as well as coordination amongst all those actors across borders by the Iranian IRGC, the militia that Iran uses, that is part of the Iranian uh, state, to spread this political military influence in the region. So this is what Iran has been doing. And yet, the West has been selectively only focusing on the nuclear issue on the basis that The nuclear issue is the most important and most threatening aspect of Iran's role. But when you put all those other activities together, you'll see that, in my view, it's just as significant, if not in in many cases, more significant. And I say more significant because Iran is not yet close to developing a nuclear bomb. Israel, in fact, has played a role in preventing Iran from developing a nuclear bomb. And that's because whenever... Iran develops kind of its experiments and and development programs. Israel has managed through all kinds of clandestine attacks and cyber attacks to kind of hold that. And Western intelligence has been playing a similar role. So, So that is a slow kind of burning issue. However, the issue of Iran's regional intervention is happening already now. And so for me, actually, the immediacy I'm not saying we should abandon the nuclear issue in any way. However, there is also an immediacy that has been ignored regarding these militias. And Hamas is part of that. It's part of that package. 
And so now I think this attack by Hamas should be a wake-up call to the West. Because if we're going to really find a solution to the Israel-Palestine issue, this can no longer be done in isolation from the Iran issue. And the Iran issue is all about what to do about Iran's regional involvement, because this is now playing out in a very concrete way. Hamas got a lot of the blueprints for its weapons from Iran. Hezbollah trained Hamas fighters. The coordination that has been happening between them has been going on for years. And so we can't just anymore be myopic and choose to focus on one part of the problem when the landscape is very complicated. I think it's worth adding to what Lina said, that if Iran officially has said that it was not involved in the attack, right, that it wasn't involved in coordinating or planning it. But we know from now the information that the Israelis have gathered from Hamas militants, they captured in the attack of various things that have been found, that it was another reporting that's happened since then, that, it, that Hamas planned it for a very long time, for maybe a year, possibly longer, that they were kind of, you know, they built a kind of a, a settlement in Gaza and planned maneuvers on it. They put a lot of time and resources into planning this attack. And, you know, the support from Iran ultimately en enables that because Iran supports Hamas with, with funding. And as well as that kind of like coordination and training with Hezbollah and, and the IIGC that Lena mentioned. So it's kind of, e even if Iran wasn't directly involved, we saw in Qatar now, it's Ismail Haniya and the Iranian foreign minister meet, meeting in, in Do Doha. There's a very clear relationship there and a support for this sort of very chaotic and violent approach. Alona, do you also see evidence of some of the myopia that Lena mentioned there in terms of Israel's approach and obviously in no way to, to justify what happened last weekend, but is some of the context to understand here Israel's pursuit of normalization and sort of, I guess, attempting to put the Palestinian issue to one side under Netanyahu's government? There are two things here. One is that Netanyahu, as you both know well for years, has been very focused on Iran and the nuclear issue. So I guess possibly part of the momentum behind the West sort of being so focused on Iranian nuclear weapons is related to Netanyahu make, making so much noise about it. And of course, there were no conditions in Obama's deal related to the, uh, the things that Lena was describing, all that militant activity sort of happening through the IRGC in, in the region. But part of the deal with the normalization is bypassing the Palestinian issue. Basically, there's an impasse. It's moribund. Okay, well, we'll just have these alliances in the region. We can ignore the Palestinians. Eventually, you know, people will stop caring about them. And who knows what he thought would happen in the long term? I, I'm not sure. And obviously, partly that those normalization deals are about a sort of front against Iran. It's related both to this ignoring of the Palestinian issue by Netanyahu's government, but also this focusing on Iran as a danger. If we are allied with UAE and with Saudi Arabia, then that's a front against Iran. But I think there's also something around Hamas. A lot of Israelis are very angry with the Netanyahu government. There's some really interesting polling. 56% think he should resign. I've got here 59% have no faith in this government leading the war. 67% think the intelligence failure was worse than the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. 94% think the government is responsible. So the Israelis are very, very angry and looking with a lot of criticism at the, at the government. And the Netanyahu government's approach towards the Palestinians has been the PA is no longer a partner. We're not talking to them. Basically, 
almost bolstering Hamas, allowing more money to come in through Qatar, thinking that Hamas was willing to respond to kind of economic incentives. They were allowing more Gazans to come into Israel to work. And what's actually been really interesting in the reporting this week as well on the security failure is it sounds like Hamas was sort of following that in order to cover the plans for the attack on Saturday. There's definitely a myopic approach in Israel in in two directions, if that makes sense as a sort of metaphor. I'm not sure if it does, but towards Iran and also towards the conflict with Israel and the Palestinians. And as you both know very well, Israel in December had, after the fifth election in four years, Israel's kind of also in the middle of a political crisis. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who'd been in opposition for a year, formed a government with very right-wing religious parties, including some avowedly racist Jewish supremacist members. They have no interest in sort of solving the conflict or going beyond a sort of myopic approach. It's worth mentioning at this point that he is on trial, criminal charges of corruption. The trial is ongoing. He's desperate not to go to jail and to save his political career. There's a lot of myopia, let's put it that way, in the Israeli government at the moment on, on what's happening. We could go on so much longer here, unfortunately. <laughs> we are we are yeah. running short on time. So let me ask you both briefly, just in closing, what are the critical questions you have at this point or the key developments that you are going to be watching in the coming hours and days? Alona, why don't we start with you first? Sure. So I know Lena said it's unlikely to happen, and I really hope you're right about this. But I think one of the things to watch is, will this become a multi-front war? There's been a lot of violence in the West Bank since it happened, including settler violence against Palestinians. The Israeli army has killed Palestinians in in the days since the attack. So will we see kind of a front developing there as well as in the north with what what Lena described around Lebanon that's one question i think the hostage question is really vital as well 199 so far confirmed there's a growing small chorus of voices among the israeli public saying we need a hostage and prisoner exchange deal this is great leverage for hamas to get political prisoners out of israel some people are saying just exchange them just do it now because otherwise these people will die and Israelis after Saturday, where the army failed, security forces failed to protect people, do not feel like they will be protected, perhaps. And the third thing I would add very quickly is the humanitarian situation in Gaza. What happens if Israel continues stopping supplies of food, water, electricity, and hundreds of thousands of people are moving south? There's got to be some humanitarian aid coming through. So will the international community manage to pressure Israel to allow that to come through? That's something to watch. Lena, what will you be watching? In addition to all this, I would add the regional landscape, what Saudi Arabia in particular will do, because just before this attack happened, and I think this is one of the uh, geopolitical drivers, uh, Saudi Arabia was uh, talking to the United States and Israel, as well as the Palestinian Authority, about some sort of deal. What will Saudi Arabia do next? All eyes are on it because it is the most influential Arab country It is the country that had created the Arab Peace Initiative two decades back to kind of say this is a way out of the conflict. And therefore, will Saudi efforts work in this regard is a a big question. And also U.S. policy matters a lot because so far we've seen mixed messages by the United States. On the one hand, supporting Israel kind of almost unconditionally, while at the same time signaling that, for example, in the campaign on Gaza, civilians should be spared. However, beyond all this, will the US actually finally take the Israel-Palestine conflict seriously and seek to reinvigorate a diplomatic peace process? 
Lina Khatib, Alona Ferber, thank you very much. And thanks so much for listening. You can follow all our reporting and analysis of the crisis in the Middle East in the latest issue of the New Statesman magazine or online at newstatesman.com. We'll be covering the situation as it develops in future episodes of the New Statesman podcast, so do follow or subscribe on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anoush and the team will be back on Thursday to discuss the latest in British politics. I'm Katie Stallard. This episode was produced by Chris Stone, and the video producer is Grace Braddock.